Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. I'm Mark Mildren. I'm at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics in Eugene, Oregon. I'm in private practice. I'm Jesse Wolfstad, an academic surgeon at Mount Sinai Hospital and the University of Toronto in Toronto, Canada. And it's my pleasure to introduce Mr. Simon Young, a surgeon at the North Shore Hospital in New Zealand and also uh, I think probably one of the few surgeons who's won all three North American Knee Society Awards for research. So it's truly an honor to have you here with us today. Thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks for having me. Do you mind kind of going through? So we've got one of the studies being presented is the three strongest Oxford knee score questions that predict subsequent knee arthroplasty revision. Do you mind going through that really quick? Well, I think all of us sort of know about patient-reported outcomes, and they're such a big part of practice now. We all feel pressure to collect them and try to interpret them as difficult. You end up with huge reams of data and different things like coming up with minimally clinically important differences or scores that give substantial clinical benefit to try and work out what's a positive score with a PROM. But this study sort of looked at maybe looking at patients who are not happy with their knee and rather than, say, looking at your anchor of being a question on dissatisfaction, we wanted to look and see, well, who went on to actually have a revision surgery. So who was unhappy enough with their procedure to undergo another one? And that was the anchor that we used to assess the outcome of the Oxford Knee Score. And essentially the summary was that when you use that one anchor uh, of going a revision within two years of the score, three questions of the Oxford Knee Score were the key ones. And the main one was pain. The first one, what's your overall pain? The next two that were important were, do you have a limp and does your knee give way or let you down? And those three questions, or a model using those three questions, were as effective as the entire Oxford Knee score at predicting revision within two years of the score being taken. Now, why do you think that is? Because we all have patients that hurt after surgery. We all have patients that maybe aren't happy with the knee, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's pathology with it. We know that there's going to be a certain percentage of knees that just hurt. Why do you think it was the one that that pain indicated some sort of pathology that would require revision in the future? I think well, my interest in this came from when you when you look at how PROMs are validated, they tend to validate against one question. So you ask all this bunch of questions, you know, in this case 12, but some scores have many more than that, and then you ask one question, are you satisfied or would you undergo the procedure again? And I always sort of wondered, like, if you've got that one question as your anchor, what's the point in having all these other questions? And as you're collecting this data, you often have to collect more than one PROM, so it becomes this sort of fatigue that goes with these. So our interest in this was seeing, well, you know, maybe there are only some questions that are important. The reason I think pain's the most important one is because it's the first question that gets asked and also because it's probably the main thing that matters to people right is pain afterwards the other two I'm less sure about you know limping's obviously a factor and the last one there is on giving way and to me that's sort of you know, some people interpret that to say that it must mean that instability is a problem but the second that question's actually got two parts it says giving way or your knee letting you down and I think probably that second part of your knee letting you down is also an important factor you know people got this knee replacement they thought it was going to be enable them to to do what they wanted to do but it lets them down it stops them doing it yeah I think that's maybe a nice segue into one of the other studies that you guys have published looking at discordance between you know high preoperative pain score and low KL grade on on their radiologic evaluation preoperatively and the association with a poorer outcome. I know that study was sort of a, a secondary analysis of a previous prospective study. In it, you talk about measuring local and central pain sensitization. Is that something that you're doing routinely in your patients? 
now? No, it was something that we did specifically for that study, and that and that study was largely driven by anaesthetics. And it's really it's interesting when you look at how surgeons evaluate outcomes after knee replacements from how anaesthetics do. You know, we always just think, oh, the anaesthetics all the same, and the anaesthetists all think, oh, the surgery's all the same. You know, they don't care about alignment or balance. They just think a, a knee replacement's a knee replacement. So they focus on these other areas, and it was really really their sort of idea to be doing this preoperative testing for sensitization and it basically involved like putting the patient's hand into an ice bath and seeing you know who could cope and who couldn't cope and they published that study mainly looking at those outcomes and we were like well maybe there's something we can look at with preoperative radiographs because we think they're important too you know the people who've got low or less osteoarthritic change on their x-ray we sort of have this feeling that they're less likely to do well after a knee replacement but when we put the two together it was the combination of having a low osteoarthritic grade on your x-ray preoperatively plus higher pain sensitization they were the people who did the worst after a knee replacement and I think those two together are probably the thing if you're looking at who should I offer or not offer it it's that combination of factors that is a a red flag do you mind expanding on perhaps the conversation you have with a patient that falls in that category because I find that's the most difficult part of my practice is someone comes in and they say you know I've been told you're gonna cure my arthritis and get rid of my pain and I find it so difficult to articulate to them that no I actually think you may have a bad outcome your pain may get worse yeah. after I do your surgery. Yeah, that's the real challenge, isn't it, articulating that. I mean, and we're not doing that test for preoperative ice bath this year, but I think in some cases in the clinic you do get a feel of what that patient's likely to be like after surgery. You're going to have more concerns about that they have a... I don't want to say pain tolerance, but more preoperative sensitization, maybe because the chronicity of their pain or they've got other chronic pain in other joints as well. I think the key thing is to not rush, to not book them straight for the knee replacement, and then sort of be surprised when they turn up on the lift. Is to bring on the list is to bring them back for multiple appointments and take the time to say that that I'm not wanting to hesitate about offering this operation because I don't think you've got a problem. It's because I'm not sure the operation's going to help you. And I think that's the distinction you really have to make with them is, is acknowledging that they've got a big problem with their knee that's really impacting their life, but convincing them that surgery isn't the solution. And that is one of the hardest conversations to have is trying talking a patient that you don't feel is going to do well that maybe have a problem on x-ray that you can fix like moderate arthritis. Yeah. But just having that gestalt or having something like this where, okay, they're not going to do great. But at the same time, this is they think that this is going to be the thing that fixes them. And I'm with Jesse. I haven't figured out that balance of like, I can't say no to this person that I know is not going to do well, but they have something I can fix. I think our orthopedic clinics are not well set up for that problem because they're all rushed. We are all under pressure in our clinics. They're not designed to have sort of 40-minute consults with, with patients. And some of them, patients, that's what they need. And one thing we've found helpful, it's not so much for the high pain, but, but say for the older patient who is having functional limitation because they're knee arthritis, they've got knee arthritis, but they also have a lot else going in their, their lives, may have some cognitive impairment and maybe going through a big operation and the risks associated with that is not the best thing for them. And I think in an orthopedic clinic, there's often a reflex, oh, here's a person with pain, they've got arthritis in their x-ray, you're going to have a knee replacement. But we now have a geriatrician clinic, so they can be referred on to that and they take a much more holistic view and then come back to us with a strong recommendation. And we found that sort of clinic, that sort of extra step between seeing an orthopedic surgeon and going straight onto the operating list to maybe make that decision a bit more considered and a bit more rational. Do you mind talking about really quick, so coming from New Zealand, how is the healthcare system different there than say in America where it's fee-for-service, we get paid to do that knee replacement? 
So there's sort of two tiers to the system in New Zealand. So there's a universal public health system. So for all, all the whole, any, any New Zealand or the whole population has access to public health care. There's also a private system which is largely based on about the 30% of the population that have insurance. And there's also a, a slightly unique system to New Zealand where there's an accident compensation. So if you're a tourist in New Zealand, even if you're hit by a drunk driver, rather than being able to sue that drunk driver, that option's now gone. The government's taken that away. Instead, what will happen is the government will pay for your health care and any compensation for permanent disability that you have. So that applies to many things across the society, including medical malpractice. You're not allowed to sue the doctor for that. You can make a complaint and there can be some restriction, but you're not allowed to sue for financial gains. So our medical malpractice insurance is very low. For orthopaedics, that has an impact, especially in sporting injuries, because essentially every sporting injury is an accident, so effectively every sporting injury has private health care, because it'll, it'll go through. So there's some nuances to the system, though, So, but it's got a two-tier component. No health system's got this right. I've worked in New Zealand, in Australia, in the UK, and in America, and the United States, and it's a, just an unsolvable problem of, of unlimited demand and limited resources. I do think having some sort of two-tier system is beneficial, but I, I don't think anyone's got it completely right. For what it's worth, I experienced the, the system when I was a f- trauma fellow at Auckland City Hospital, and uh, I, I think you guys do it better than the Canadians do. Like, the level of care in the public system, I thought, was fantastic. And that sort of trauma system amazed me. Like, just to give you some perspective, Mark, like, literally, if you walk off the plane at Auckland International Airport, fall and twist your ankle, and you're just a tourist, everything is covered. They'll pay your taxi to get to and from physiotherapy appointments. If you have to miss work, they will reimburse you for that. It was pretty amazing. I I don't know how you can afford it. It was a system that was set up in the 70s. It was sort of one of those, you know, things that went from academia into practice and only really seems to be, exist in New Zealand. It's good for society, actually. Like, I, I do think it, it makes us a little bit less risk-averse when you're practicing. That's, that's across the whole spectrum of society because, you know, people in a store isn't worried that someone's going to slip on a wet floor and, and sue them. You know, that, that takes that tort or the, the threat of litigation out of society. The system's not perfect. I mean, if you get a bad accident, you know, the system will really look after you because it covers accidents. But if you get a bad infection, fiction or a medical problem it doesn't capture you quite so well so the loss of earnings and things only really applies if it's an accident that causes the problem but yeah it's interesting for tourists because yeah people are really surprised when they come from America that everything's because the tourist isn't allowed to sue they have to be covered as well so if you're in, a, in New Zealand no matter what your citizenship if you have an accident then everything's covered. So how about just for an elective joint replacement what are the wait times that you're looking at that is that where the system kind of yeah, falters so a little bit. We used to be much better than we are now. COVID's just, just decimated us. Sure. And it's just because there's no mechanism to catch up. You know, the system's already stretched. Typically, what would, would have happened a few years ago in, in our hospital, a, a GP would refer in. That referral would get graded, so we wouldn't see every referral. But if the patient had bad x-rays or show a bad arthritis on x-rays, then they would be seen within sort of three to four months and then usually getting their primary hip or knee sort of four to six months after that. Now that wait time has blown out to sort of 12 months, some places more, and we haven't really worked out how we're going to catch up on that. Again, just to expand on that, I think there's a function whereby patients can take the next available surgery or can choose to wait for you know Mr. Young to do their surgery because they've is that correct? In the public system mostly you could ask to see a specific surgeon but really that choice of who you would see is more in private you know if you're being referred by your GP you could ask to be who you could be referred to if you came into referred in the public system generally you would just get put with whatever surgeon but you could you're right you could ask yeah.
and some surgeons might have a shorter wait list and be, you could be moved around. Yeah, Most of the people actually coming through are pretty agnostic about their surgeon. I think it's not in the North America where, or certainly in the United States of America, where there's much more private, much more marketing. People are much more specific about having a, a specific surgeon. That's less common in New Zealand. Correct me if I'm wrong, I, I believe some of the quality metrics that are captured in the New Zealand registry are publicly available to patients. Is, is that correct? The data from the registry is not discoverable in that people, individual surgeon data, if a lawyer was to come after it, is not able to get it. That was sort of original thing when we set up the registry and the, that's a government mandated. Part of that is just to make sure that surgeons aren't, aren't afraid to take part so no one's going to try to hide data uh, because it's not discoverable. But the national report is published, the overall metrics are published, but it's not tied to an individual service surgeon. So, interestingly, in the UK now, that stuff is publicly reported. I don't know if we yet know what the impact of that is going to be for surgeons and patients. I was at a meeting last uh, week which had some representatives from New Zealand, UK and Australia and we were talking about registries and that, that it's a potential concern. I have a worry that there might be some negative impacts from registries if surgeons change their practice and let's for example say to not operate on people who have a higher risk of mortality or a higher risk of revision and so they're denying care because if you get your results back from the registry as everybody does and you're an outlier for whatever reason say on mortality or revision rate you're going to change your practice you're going to change something and if particularly for mortality which is what they published in the UK they published individual surgeons mortality after hip and knee replacement to me the way you ch change your mortality it figures is to operate on lower risk patients. I don't know how else you would do that. You know, it's not likely to be a surgical factor that's changing that. It's, it's the patients that you're operating on. And that might be a negative for society. Well, I've always thought it changes the conversation of if you're going to have surgery, it's no longer between the surgeon and the patient, but it's now between the surgeon and kind of everyone because what happens to this patient is now a very public thing. And that goes into your head when you're deciding, yes, I should operate on you or no, I'm not going to. Because um, you're thinking about these other things out here, which is not necessarily a good thing, definitely some benefits, but it changes that conversation. And it's, it's really hard to articulate that to, to government or outsiders because, because transparency is a buzzword and it's really hard to explain why complete and open transparency on those figures may not always be good for society. Because imagine a situation where every single surgeon was of an equal skill operating on exactly the same group of patients. Then 50% of people would be above average on the registry and 50% would be below. And there would be 2.5% who are outliers in the wrong direction having done nothing wrong and that's just stats that's just numbers and the more we have registry data and the more pressure this is to make it uh, public and and I guess notifiable or or discoverable uh, the more I think we'll face this well and as well as can create an access problem for people that maybe are not the ideal surgical candidate but really can benefit from surgery but have a higher risk profile you know people are going to be less inclined to operate on those people and so it's absolutely I think yeah. we already have that in many places with be hard stops for BMI cutoffs, despite the fact that we know high BMI patients still benefit from arthroplasty. I think most of the time people are doing that out of their own sort of self-interest. But it's not, that maybe is a bit harsh, because sometimes it's external drivers in terms of reimbursement and things like that that drives those decisions. But I don't think it's always in the best interests of the society that we serve. You've done some extensive research in the use of intraosseous antibiotics, you know, particularly I think around total knee replacement. It's very interesting stuff and certainly something that's a little bit foreign to most North American surgeons. I'm just curious, is intraosseous antibiotics a routine part of your practice for all total knees? Do you risk stratify and 
what's the flavor of the use of that in the surrounding hospitals and centers in New Zealand? So in my practice now, I do it routinely. I do it in everyone. In my center, most people aren't doing it routinely. They're doing it on a risk-satisfied basis. There's surgeons, a number in Australia, I think, who are doing it largely routinely. The concept came from, I was actually doing an elbow replacement as a registrar, and I watched the surgeon put the tourniquet on, and then he cannulated a, a wrist vein, and then put the antibiotic in, I thought, what a great idea, I wonder if anyone's done that in total knees. And then I went online and looked on PubMed and found a surgeon in Italy who'd done it a few times, and he was cannulating a foot vein, and I thought, well, that sounds quite hard to find a foot vein, <laughs> and I wonder if the intraosseous would work, and then, so that was where the concept came from, and then we did a, some studies there looking just to see if the t- tissue concept concentration was higher and it seemed to be and it's pretty reliable and reproducible that you can get it in and, and I think the, the key thing is it's not really injecting in the bone that's a difference it's the fact that you're doing a regional administration like a beers block with the tourniquet you could cannulate a foot vein the only reason to use the interosseous is just that it's easier to put a needle into the bone than it is to find the vein but the effect is essentially the same. And are, are you are you still also using a systemic antibiotic, typically cefazolin, before skin incision in addition? Yes, and largely the reason to do that is just because of hospital protocols. So most hospital protocols will have the administration of a systemic antibiotic, usually Kefzol or some other Kefalosporin, as kind of a key performance indicator. And so if you try to change that and say I'm going to put the Kefazolin in intraosseously, that's a whole bunch of paperwork and a whole bunch of managers you have to sort of convince and, and change. So routinely what I've done is kept the Kefzol systemically and used the vancomycin intraosseously. There is also a little bit of a pharmacological basis for that in that Without going into it too deeply, some antibiotic pharmacokinetics work better by having a really high concentration like gentamicin and vancomycin. For kefazolin, it's not so important to have a really high concentration, at least in treatment. So that was the rationale. Maybe if we keep the kefazolin systemically, but we'll give this lower dose of vancomycin intraosseously with the regional technique to get that really high concentrations without giving them a huge vancomycin load. Can we just appreciate for a second the fact that this came about because, and this is the, like one of the most orthopedic things ever, it was easier to stick something metal into the bone than to start an IV. Yes, exactly right, yeah. Yeah, I did a lot of times as a junior doctor, but I, I still wouldn't be able to do it now. And w- so where do you think the future is with intraosseous antibiotics? Do you think it's go- it should replace systemic antibiotics? In it's a good question. The overall effect, you know, because infection is a rare complication, I think for a vision surgery it's an easier thing to justify because the risk is higher. For primary surgery I think it's less easy to justify. But really what you're trying to do is improve your overall outcomes. And the only concern I think or negative of using the vancomycin in this way is the uh, antibiotic stewardship. You know, are you going to be increasing resistance? But in an experimental setting, if you want to induce resistance, the way to do it is to expose the bacteria to a prolonged period of MIC sort of level concentrations. When you're doing the intraosseous technique, you're using a small, sharp dose that gives a spike that sort of protects the knee while the incision is open, uh, which is the time that contamination is occurring, and then it'll wash out quickly. So hopefully, uh, and I guess this is, remains to be seen, it's not adding a lot to that resistance burden because it's a small amount. But I do think you have to acknowledge, you know, there's a lot of knee replacements go around the world. So if everyone was doing it, then uh, that would be certainly a worry. But I think it's justifiable, right? A lot of people are using vancomycin routinely anyway because the main bacteria that cause those early infection tend to be coagulase negative staph or MRSA. You know, they're resistant to the cavazolin. 
So being from New Zealand, obviously an expert in a specific field. So I have to ask, if you could do a hip replacement on any character from Lord of the Rings, who would it be? Um, and if you've never seen Lord of the Rings, then we can totally edit this out. Not Peter Jackson, actually. I think he'd be quite hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> <laughs> Nor one of the smallest hobbits, right? Because they, they were, yeah, I, the I sizes think, are going to be. Yeah, all I'd weird. go for the. I think Viggo Mortensen, right? Yeah, yeah I was yeah. going to say him or Orlando Bloom. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that either one of those guys. Smaller soft tissue envelope. And, yep. and, yeah, yeah, easiest in anime. What approach would you use? Oh, posterior. Posterior, yeah, very yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that yeah. probably brings us to the end. So, Simon, it was it was really a pleasure meeting you today, yeah, and you know, I, I've certainly read lots of your research and your track record and, and your accomplishments speak for themselves. So, thank you so much for coming to AUKUS and sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.